0: Who Cares About Watchmen? Episode 9 See How They Fly. Today we have the quartet of myself, Neo, and Tomtit from Australia, and In Giga and Dilb from England, the four of us fans of the 1980s Watchmen comic that inspired the show, and mostly fans of the show and the recent work of its Commander in Chief, Damon Lindelof. Is this fair to say?
1: Yeah! Well, at least as far as The Leftovers goes. I, I've not seen other Lindelof stuff, personally.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm starting to take into account the Parada factor. Like, I think a lot of people are trying to cope. I've
3: seen, like, two episodes of Leftovers, and I liked him. Yeah. I, I mean to watch more.
0: On the topic of Watchmen and this, the finale, and this is spoiler talk now, of course, we saw how Lady True was a secret daughter of Ozymandias. We saw her spacecraft rescue Ozymandias from Europa. We saw her co-opt the 7th Cavalry's attempt to kill Dr. Manhattan and steal his powers. Then we saw her father, Ozymandias, thwart her attempt to gain Manhattan's powers by way of frozen squids raining from the sky. True killed Cyclops. True killed Manhattan. Squids killed True. Looking Glass killed Ozzy's pride by knocking him out with a wrench. Laurie and Looking Glass vowed to reveal Ozymandias' squidly hoaxes to the world Angela's son, Topher, found out she was Sister Knight, a masked vigilante. Will Reeves moved in with the family, at least for a time. Angela swallowed an egg probably imbued with Manhattan's powers, presumably making her rather godly herself, and blue as well if the promotional photos that went with the show were anything to go by. And in PDPDR, the extra textual in-universe documents accompanying the show, Dale Peaty is heavily, heavily, heavily implied to be lube man, and he goes on the run himself with the FBI trying to catch him too. So I'm going to start everyone by asking things that we liked about the episode. Gig, what did you like about the finale?
1: Um well, on the well, on the topic of the finale, I on the whole, it was fun, and in particular, I loved all the Vite stuff, like the opening 20-ish minutes with Adrian, the resolution of his whole storyline, the stuff with the Game Warden, the stuff with him uh, sort of facing off with his uh, daughter, and basically all of his self aggrandizing antics in that stuff. I thought that was very fun. Basically, all of the stuff that doesn't have, that has very little to do with, like, Manhattan, it's mostly to do with Adrian. That stuff, I, that was very entertaining. I thought it was great. Tomtit, what did you like about the finale?
2: Uh, well, I cheered, I shouted, I fist pumped the air. (laughs) But um, honestly, I I probably liked the scene where um, the game warden asked if he was a good opponent and Vice just says no. That made me (laughs) laugh. The follow up line when he's like, oh, but you put on a hell of a show, I was sort of, I was like, they could have just left it at a simple no. But um, yeah, that tickled me. And that's about it.
0: Dil, what did you like about the finale? I
3: liked um, Looking Glass and Laurie. Their sort of little duo was quite fun. I wasn't expecting him to come back. I thought he'd just flown the coop. So, uh, so I was quite pleased with his
0: presence. Yeah, I liked the um, how Mandius, who is, of course, a narcissist, was taken out by a looking glass in the end. That was very. That yeah. felt kind of in the spirit of Moore and the comic and that sort of thing. I thought that was quite good. Uh, in terms of what I liked, I loved. Ozymandias being a Volcel, I've never given myself to. A woman. I thought that was great. I liked the mask stuff, like the point about why Vite gave the Game Warden a mask and what Will Reeves says about masks, how wounds need air, and masks make men cruel. I found all that interesting. I liked that adversaries keeping men sane as well. I felt like the Europa stuff connected to some of the themes of the Tulsa stuff quite well. Like the adversaries keeping people sane ties into the 7th Cavalry controlled opposition with the cops and all that. Uh, Yeah. So what did we think about the finale in broader terms then?
1: I I feel like there's going to be lots to say from everyone, so I'm just going to jump in there first. I think um, on the whole, looking at it, it's basically... (laughs) I don't want to make the obvious comparison, but we've already been talking about this. Um, They they pulled another years and years, basically. And what I mean by that is the opening episodes of the show up to a certain point are suggesting all sorts of brilliant, daring, radical exciting, dramatic possibilities which the series doesn't actually have any intention of delivering upon.
0: Mm -hmm. For Clarity Years and Years was a 2019 sci-fi-ish family saga mini-series that we also covered with podcasts and videos on this channel.
1: And the the finale in that sense is pockmarked with numerous little little disappointments kind of where things are much less interesting than you maybe expect they were going to be and And on the whole, what seems to become clear about the finale in relation to the series overall is that uh, probably Manhattan shouldn't have been in the show. Because, yeah, like, almost looking at it, it becomes clear that actually... Moore taking Manhattan off the board at the end of the book was almost trying to, like, trying to spare us this, because it's, you know, it becomes apparent that if John is in the story at all, the world just revolves around him, you know, which is why Moore, you know, gets rid of him at the end, like, that's, that was part of his point, like, you can't just have this superhero figure in the realistic world, because it just goes to hell in a handbasket, and taking Manhattan out, force, would you know, force any follow-up to be about much more immediately interesting and relevant things things which the show was up until about episode 6. So, you know, there you go.
2: The finale has sullied um the rest of the show probably to a greater extent than years and years as did, but um I still generally would recommend like the the beginning of the season to people. Yeah.
3: I think actually seeing it, yeah, I agree with the sentiment that it kind of sort of just takes away from all the big mystery and stuff of it. But I guess it was cohesive and like really just tied everything together to a point where maybe it did really surprise, like, I was kind of just expecting it to go how it
0: did. The first six episodes, I hold a lot of praise for. I think they're really good television, and I think there's interesting stuff in the seventh, and there's things I like about the eighth and ninth, but in terms of the overall experiment, I think it was a good try, this show, and I'll recommend it to people um, that I think will like it. Like, I, I, it's, it's a good television show, but... I do think the finale, yeah, it reframed things uh, as Veidt would say, problematically. Like, here's one thing from a Lindelof interview uh, that he did yesterday. He said, in original incarnations of the series, the Seventh Cavalry had a plan that was involving mind control and masks. There was a mind-control device woven into the fabric of the yellow masks and the 7th Cavalry Rorschach masks, so an entire army of cops and cavalry members alike could be controlled by whoever was in charge of that, and Will Reeves was going to hijack that remote from Keen's hands. It was finally the revelation of, can the cavalry also be making a play for Dr. Manhattan and Lady True is piggybacking on their plan? When we abandon this ridiculous idea of mind-control, that's when everything slipped into place. End quote. And that's like they had the mesmerism stuff in episode six and then it was just dropped and that feels really odd with the finale and then the whole series in mind then. As does the stuff like how True gave everyone in Tulsa free HD TVs. And there feels like a lot of hmm. dropped threads, which I don't feel in um the comic, and I didn't really I didn't feel in the leftovers, Lindelof's last show, or that, that was constructed to kind of be resistant to this whole kind of looking for threads in the first place but it felt oddly sloppy to me had uh, that kind of thing
1: that quote you just read out i think there's, there's an irony there which Lindelof does not seem to catch which is that he's like oh well we dropped the ridiculous idea of mind control fabric masks to go with the eminently not silly at all idea of turning yourself into a blue willy god thing <laughs> it's like you know in, in terms of actually telling an interesting story like I'm not sure uh, Manhattan being a MacGuffin to turn you into god is actually that much less silly of an idea than you know mass mind control in terms of political and thematic rampage ramifications it's kind of it's kind of on the same ballpark in my in my idea it reminds me of something that i think someone it might have been but someone said it around episode six which is that you know using for example mind control to talk about racism it's you know you're fundamentally you're taking something that's real and gritty and harsh and difficult and doing it in a slightly, in a silly way, in kind of a, a, a sci-fi sort of fantasy way. And it's to some extent, it's a, it's a bit of a cop-out. And I think all the God stuff is a, slightly like that for, for this.
0: Yeah. My issue with the whole becoming Manhattan thing isn't that it's not built in the comic at all. I don't care about that. The show's the show. It can make up its own ideas. I thought it was inelegant how they suddenly just said, oh, you can eat a thing and become like Manhattan. But whatever, the show's doing its own thing. It can make that up. My issue was it never happened. Like, the whole thing of the comic is that the big world-changing thing does happen in the end. Veidt's plan happens, and we assume it's probably going to work, or maybe it won't. That's the interesting thing about the ambiguity of the ending. But the ending is something happening. Whereas this ending is, like, so superhero show or cop show in that Everyone maintains the status quo. The big change doesn't happen. A new person doesn't become a god and change things. They prevent that from happening. Things stay mostly the same. The heroes save the day by preserving the status quo. And that feels so like... Like Lindelof said he wanted to disrupt the comic Watchmen. He wanted to be brave. And I don't feel like this is in the spirit of the bravery of the comic. And I certainly don't feel this is like being even braver by disrupting the comic. I feel like this is much more like a very traditional superhero thing because a big thing didn't change they stopped a big thing changing what would the ramifications been of lady true becoming a god what would she have done to you know racism in the country or people's trauma remember how she had all those philosophical ideas about trauma and memory what would she have done we'll never know because things stayed the same in the end that was the story of the show and i just find that so dissatisfying because the show had really developed its themes interestingly and it had thrown up a lot of interesting ways for things to go so for the heroes to stop things happening I didn't like that
2: yeah there was sort of almost nothing in this episode to really challenge or unsettle the general viewer or like no memorable images either for me it's sort of a lot of sound stage work and which is odd because I read an interview where he said that he didn't want the finale to reflect the last issue of the book where people stand around and talk because it's a visual medium but um and like I get that but The one we ended up with was still sort of a lot of people standing around sound stages and, you know, talking. It's just done in a very fast, urgent way. And it it didn't really um, grab me. And I feel like this is probably a finale that I'll forget about in like a month's time, which maybe its saving grace.
1: I think it really really suffers from the problem of just being so, it's so normal. Like, it's the kind of finale you would see on like season one of some, you know, decent show, perhaps an amazing show.
0: There was a blue skybeam. There was literally yeah. like blue light pointing upward, like in any <laughs> like superhero movie.
1: Yeah, there's so much like blue beams of energy and shit, and ooh, like you got thirty seconds till the countdown, and Manhattan runs out and disappears, and all that stuff. It, it's it's like. It's it's so weird and almost absurd to end the show in this way. If you're trying to have the name of Watchmen and bear the name of Watchmen, because you know part of what makes Watchmen so memorable is that it's kind of haunting. Like you read it and it's like, oh fuck, you know. Like I'm not saying I don't think necessarily the show needed to end with the entire world being changed or whatever. I think the stakes could easily be much lower, much smaller than in the book. But like they, it, as long as there was something to actually you know like like tit says like challenge the viewer and uh, like the it's 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 cutesy. I think basically the final three episodes of the show basically amount to a cutesy fanfic rather than a true successor, that something's actually trying to, to to push the envelope and actually leave people's jaws on the floor. Like, I find it funny and amusing that Vite basically, you know, shoots down a bunch of little squids to, you know, stop his his kind of narcissistic daughter from changing the status quo, but that's that's amusing. That's not like that's not something that's gonna stick with me for like twenty years or whatever.
2: The most unsettling thing is like the idea that one of your maids steals one of your bottles of vile sperm <laughs> it's bizarre like lady true to me feels like a ancestor of like the disgruntled stark employee from a marvel movie you know it's that level of oh, yeah. villain yeah right like i f- i couldn't believe what i was saying
0: there's a note about lady true that i think is interesting and it's about the actress hong Chao, who lindelof said uh, she was treated basically as a producer or like a creative consultant because she was the only really prominent person of Vietnamese descent in the show. So he would like send her the audition reels for the Vietnamese actors, the characters, because he wanted to know, are they actually speaking Vietnamese? And he would like run through the Vietnamese elements of the script with this actress because he was unsure if they were, you know, problematic or they had issues or whatnot. So she wasn't just an actress. She was like a kind of a creative deal for the show and I feel like that's an issue to me because for there to be so little like representation of that in the writer's room, it kind of speaks to why the Vietnam stuff felt undercooked in the end. And I think you can apply that more broadly to the show with like, in the finale, the elements we're saying undercooked, like what exactly went wrong there? Why didn't they go bigger or go bolder or make things change more? Because like they and half the writers' room were pretty big fans of the comic, Lindelof says, and the other half were more new to it. So I don't know what happened for them to not want to push things so much. Why do you think they went this way in the end?
2: I think it could be because Lindelof maybe just sees a certain like pulpiness in the novel that like I personally don't. I mean, it's obviously like the squid is a pulpy trope, but the actual shape of the story is more of like a... I mean, parts of it are noir, parts of it are sort of um, conspiracy, but like it's not like a... It's not using the shape of a superhero story is what I mean. It's just using the characters. And um, I think Lindelof, because like most of his experiences in genre work, you know, like Prometheus and um, shit like that, Star Trek, which doesn't necessarily like transcend the boundaries of the genre's shape. Um, So I think he's kind of just writing what he knows. I, I, I don't know. I don't have an answer, basically.
1: I think that interview quote where he says, that you mentioned earlier, where he says originally they wanted it to be like the last issue of the comic wherever it was um, in monologuing, but then they said, actually, no, we shouldn't do that. It needs to be, it needs to be exciting because it's a visual medium and so on and so forth. Uh, and for, for, to, for the record, I don't necessarily agree with that conclusion there, but I think that's revealing because I think in their heads, they were like, well, it needs to be a proper TV finale. It needs to be exciting. It needs to wrap everything up and this and that. And I think, I think they, they'd set themselves such a huge challenge and a puzzle in terms of getting all of these elements in and getting them to work together that I think what we have in this finale is just like the best they could do in terms of getting an, an episode of television together rather than like, so rather than them actually I think it's like I think I think they probably might have liked to do something crazier and wilder but maybe they just literally just couldn't like couldn't work out how to do anything so they just lowered their ambition slightly
0: speaking of not working out what to do dilb since you're the big looking glass fan can i ask what you thought of how he treated vite and like how he knocked him out in the end and his general kind of just reaction to vite in general
3: yeah i was expecting like Some kind of big confrontation. I actually kind of liked his sort of sad, like, resigned curiosity when he asks him about the squid and stuff. But, yeah, it felt like Looking Glass was kind of a spare part for a lot of it. Just sort of tagging along. He's never seen, like, Dr. Manhattan before, and he's just sort of there, you know?
0: Yeah, there was kind of a real comic reunion aspect with, like, Laurie seeing Manhattan, although they don't really have much of an exchange. But then... Vite and Laurie meeting up again definitely has this, you know, comic aspect. And then when they see Archie, the owl ship of Dan Dryberg, who is the big major, one of the main characters from the comic, he's the sole one that was alive in the timeline of the show but never appeared. And he finally got name-checked. And, like, there's all these things kind of connecting to the comic. And I agree with Gig that it all kind of feels like they couldn't really manage something ambitious. And so they kind of fell back on a more regular TV finale and also the kind of fan servicey stuff that they sometimes did in the show and that it's like I didn't I wasn't not enjoying it a lot of the time, but I wasn't like Tit said, I wasn't being challenged by it and that's a that's a damn shame.
1: Yeah, regarding the comic reunion aspect, it's like um particularly the the Vite and Laurie stuff it strikes me that that to a certain extent is leaning into this whole sort of oh nostalgia the gang's back together god what if what if they quit to each other about the stuff that happened in the comic guys and and which and it's that's the sort of stuff obviously that we see all over you know, pop culture now you know because every franchise is now doing this you know all that old characters come back what struck me is that um something we saw recently which skewered that thing so nicely in my opinion was you know the return of twin peaks which kind of had this Thing of oh, all characters yes. coming back, but sort of unsettled that in a way that was actually provocative and sort of un- undermined it in various ways and sort of kind of set you up to expect some kind of wholesome reunion but then sort of delayed gratification on that and undermined it and stuff and so like it, it seems like it's annoying that in t- 2 years ago we've had you know a major television series completely kind of puncturing that whole style
0: uh, a, a major what
1: a major television series oh, gosh, oh god fucking hell <laughs> oh, literally I thought I, I thought my connection gone out you hadn't heard me but you were just taking the pier, sorry, very funny. Anyway, it's annoying to have had like, a major um, work, skewer that so well, but for, for a follow-up to Watchmen that is kind of doing a similar thing with a 30-year time skip, to not really lean to that nearly as much.
0: Yeah, the interesting thing there is Twin Peaks' The Return was such a success that many, many prestigious film associations are calling it like the best film of the 2010s and such, And whatever you can think of their classification reasonings, like clearly this resounded with a lot of people in a huge way and it had a huge merit and worth and prestige to it that it really earned. And this was, it wasn't just by being resistant to its past, like the return did a whole bunch of new things to itself that weren't just about its relationship to the 90s seasons of Twin Peaks, but it really indicated that there's a lot of storytelling worth and things you can do. You have zero interest in pandering to like nostalgia. And it's odd because I know Lindelof loved The Return, as did, you know, most showrunners like Lindelof, Noah Hawley, all these people, they loved The Return. We loved The Return. It was very popular amongst, you know, TV geek people. So it confuses me that not many shows are seeming to pick up its lessons, you know, in terms of really interacting with resisting nostalgia in that way. Like this show talked a lot about nostalgia, but it went pretty hard for the nostalgia, in the end, in a lot of ways. Like, the thing with Laurie saying, oh, we're finally going to prosecute Ozzy and stuff, it's like, this is just, like, limply extending the comics ending and changing Laurie's mind. Like, that isn't a new direction or anything. So it confuses me why Lindelof and other people aren't taking lessons from that uh, work called Twin Peaks, The Return,
1: yeah. It's ironic you mentioned nostalgia, but nostalgia, the drug, was not mentioned in this episode at all, despite being by far one of the show's best new ideas, you know, most interesting new ideas.
3: Was it this podcast that had the idea that um, True would be sort of transmitting... Because there's something about how the True company has has the rights to American um, hero story.
0: Will Reeves inherited the rights from Captain Metropolis who left him to him in his will. So he has the rights to the Minutemen and everything and he's in cahoots with True and True's installed free HDTVs all over Tulsa. We weren't the only ones. Like a lot of people independently came up with these ideas of is True going to, you know, transmit some kind of hypnosis or mesmerism mes- 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 or, you know, an empathy bomb with the, Millennium, with the Millennium Clock. I assume that's what you're talking about, one of those things. Yeah. Albums?
3: I think an empathy bomb would have been a lot more interesting and yeah, it would have been something happening. Like.
0: And and the fact that we were far from the only people, loads of people came up with those ideas, confuses <laughs> me because I'm assumed they came up in the writer's room as well. And I'm interested why they didn't go with them. Like these aren't big budget ideas. An empathy bomb isn't a hard idea to do. Just film a lot of people reacting to a TV and then You know, acting different and having different dialogue about how they feel now. So,
1: cut in some flashbacks too. (laughs) The show's so good at that. It strikes me that on the, the true front, specifically the Millennium Clock, that was another thing that people had so many kind of imaginative, crazy, exciting ideas about, like, you know, they, what does it mean to say it tells time? What's what's that code for? Could it be to do with time travel, to do with memories? Is it going to warp some shit? Like, it, it, what, what's the significance of it being positioned in, like, the center of America geographically? What's it going to do? And it just turns out to be a, a gimmick that turns you into Dr. Manhattan, How disappointing, could they have picked anything more disappointing for the clock to be outside of just being an actual clock that has no other purpose?
2: I mean, I'm on record as like not being entirely crazy about the mind control idea, but to me compared to this it's like at least it's indelibly linked to like the world of Oklahoma that they were creating in the early episodes whereas bringing in Dr. Manhattan just feels like a like an afterthought you know
0: uh, speaking of Oklahoma i have to say i loved when they used the opening song from Oklahoma for the um the after effects of the frozen squidfall i didn't love how the frozen squidfall was really realized i felt like that was oversold probably in the script and in Ozzy's dialogue talking about it's going to be so destructive and we only saw a true die, and the city didn't look that trashed in the end. But. I loved circling back to the premiere and using another song from Oklahoma, the musical. There, for no real reasons beyond like fan service, and I I knew that thing.
1: Speaking of that sequence, um, when that song's playing, um, that's that the bit where Topher sees uh, Angela's costume in kind of hung up, and they have that sort of wordless bit where they look at each other, and it's like, oh my god, he's realizing that his his uh, Angela is is a vigilante and stuff. Um, that was another thing that reminded me of years and years because that finale also had a sequence where like something was kind of given fake payoff and kind of to to suggest to you that something cool ought to have happened but they didn't actually uh, follow through on it. I'm specifically thinking of the bit where um, a bit the the, the, the sort of the fantasy sequence about what might the fate of oh, be. Yeah, which kind of teases you with the idea of something yeah, cool happening yeah. there but they didn't actually pay it off and here like Topher was so signified and so interesting and so set up for stuff earlier on in the series and he gets no lines in this episode yeah. nothing at all. he just looks at angela angela pulls a face for a bit and it's like oh great
0: yeah i think on that notes of him looking meaningfully and shocked at the sister night costume and then to his mum my issue with that i like the moment for what it's worth but my issue is we never got or at least i never got clarity for the actual public knowledge of the Top superheroes, Sister Knight, Looking Glass, Red Scare, Pirate Jenny, everyone. Like, do people know about these? Are there like drawings of them? Are they talked about in the newspapers or is it real lockdown and they just wear it so the 7th Cavalry can't see them? Like, does anyone, has anyone seen Sister Knight in public and like posted on the internet? Oh, look at this vigilante in Tulsa, cool costume and stuff.
1: Um, like, there's, no, there's no internet in this timeline, remember? Oh, true. But do you,
0: you know what I'm saying? Like, does anyone yeah. know about these people? beyond people who would be at like crime scenes. like is it? I know that it's only there to, like, combat, well, supposedly combat the 7th Cavalry and their doxing of the cops and that, but is there any public knowledge of them, is my question.
1: Well, we saw the paparazzi f- f- photographing them in Episode 2, oh, I think. Yeah, like, So point, I think they're, they're out in public enough that they've probably been seen. Like, I doubt their existence is a secret, so much as, you know, their, their actual see, true identities are the secret.
0: So do you assume Tofa like, knows of Sister Knight, like, he's seen that before and he, like, knows, oh, that's a superhero cop in Tulsa. Do you think he-
1: I mean, even if he doesn't know who Sister Knight specifically is, like, if he sees that costume, he, he can, you know, he can assume that it's a, it's a vigilante costume, like, what else is it going to be, <laughs> really?
2: I mean, we, the viewer, haven't seen Sister Knight since episode four, and I would argue this hasn't really been a show about cops since, like, episode six. I, th- I think they, j- they, would j- they thought we wouldn't notice that they just sort of brushed off the whole um, talking about cops element.
0: You know what really hurts there is this was a really good, interesting cop show. The show was doing really well with its themes, in my opinion. The stuff it was doing with Tulsa and cops and generational trauma and racial legacy and all that, that was really working for me and I thought it was going super well. And so it's just so annoying that Lindelof says, well, you kind of Watchmen without Dr. Manhattan And proceeds in the last three episodes to give us this, I'm sorry, this hideous take. I like the actor and I like his acting for what it's worth, but his Manhattan did not look good with the, I'm not going to harp on this point. We talked a lot last podcast about that, but you know what I'm saying? That it just, it abandoned a lot of what was not just working well, but was working really well. What was really going well as a show. And I really loved to do this stuff instead.
1: It's Perhaps. very glib what we get of the seventh cavalry in this episode, considering I know I know oh, Lindelof has a like a whole thing about how well, you know, the the cavalry are nept, really. Like, they couldn't be like a, a real major threat or whatever, but yeah, you know, I I think you can have the cavalry be incompetent and stuff, and obviously King's death is very funny in this episode, but you can yeah, you can have that and still at least have the themes be in play still. I think there's there's some there's some problems there. Like they have this whole thing about how all the leaders of Cyclops have assembled. Here and uh, yeah, you know, Lady True kills them all, great, but uh, and that's but apparently it seems like that's Will's end game, just like killing a bunch of people in this room, and it's like, well. Okay, I can see how that's something he might want, but given w- given what Will has seen and everything that you know, Will has gone through, the thought that he would just be like the thought that he'd be satisfied with just taking out like, a few you know figureheads basically, rather than seeing through to the deeper underlying problems of you know society, that's really annoying. It, it's uh, it's one of those liberal things, you know, not to harp on this, but like it's it's one of the things where oh well the system isn't the problem; it's just this evil racist cult inside the system that's the problem yeah and it's almost it's actually it's almost annoying actually in that little speech that true starts to read out where she's like oh cyclops you have terrorized people all the way back to the greenwood massacre and it's like i'm um, actually um the greenwood massacre that actually happened that wasn't just like a a little like cult thing doing that that was american society itself doing that you know you can't just put it in a box and then say oh okay we're getting, we're, we're killing the box we're, we're, bravo problem solved you know it's just it, it's Refusing to look deeper down into the underlying problems, which is as annoying, and I think it sells out some of the good stuff in the earlier episodes. Yeah, uh,
0: I agree. So hard, and I'm gonna get on the soapbox a bit here. First minor point is, like, you know, in the first episode, how the humorously modified Rorschach speech had that line about liberal tears, and that's not a thing. Like, white supremacists or the alt right say no. People don't say liberal tears. It's not an actual thing. You can tell this is a bunch of Uh, uh, liberals yeah you can tell this is a bunch of liberals trying to write these type of people i would say without really getting inside their heads at all which you know you can argue is good ethically that's fine but i don't think it's good writing and then in this episode we had another line about you know we were gonna have ourselves a little culture war kane says no one would say that that's not what these people say and this flippancy with the cavalry i don't think it's cute and i don't think it's like morally uh, justifiable the way the show wants to do. Like there's another Lindelof quote where he says what made the comic appealing to him is that White stops a nuclear war from happening temporarily but you don't come away from the comic thinking peace is going to hold forever because it's our nature to point weapons at another. So there was never going to be a version of this show where white supremacy was going to be defeated. Therefore, you couldn't take that on in the finale. You had to sideline the 7th Cavalry and no... (laughs) No, you didn't. Like, the show consistently treated them flippantly and wasn't interested in really exploring them. And I don't I don't find that like justified in that liberal way of well, obviously they're wrong, so we don't need to consider them at all. I'm not saying you need to humanize them or justify them, but it's just bad writing to have your villain be these completely evil, you know, group that you never explore at all and then you get less interested in because these are like the these are actual, this resonates with people because there are actual groups like this. You know, there's, you know, an actual alt right movement, there's actual white supremacists, there's actual cults like that. And to just be so flippant about it and never explore them and just toast them away in the end like that, it, it annoyed me a lot and it disappointed me uh, big time. You know, the show abandoned the cop and Tulsa stuff a lot, but even when it wasn't, it was treating them. In a very flippant way.
1: On the plus side, Senator Akin wearing the Manhattan panties was very funny, and some of so, uh, some of his um, some of his dialogue was so like cheesy to the point where it just wrapped around, and became quite funny. Like, I'm going to squeeze your man like a grape. Yeehaw! Like all of that shit. I, re-
0: I really loved how the order of like the injustices <laughs> he said it was first they took our guns, and then they made us say sorry. <laughs> Like that, the saying sorry is like the truly catastrophic thing that he's really wounded about. I thought that was funny. And it's like the it's really hard to be a white man in America right now. Like, these are funny lines, but the show never engaged with uh, white supremacy in a meaningful or interesting way at all. And I think that's a mark against
1: the writing of it to me. One more line that I thought was funny in that keen bit was, um, he says, um, Adrian Veidt unleashed his monster on the world. Not the giant one-eyed octopus, but his puppet president! <laughs> I, I found that funny. That crystallised the whole Robert Redford thing for me a bit. The idea that a liberal president would be as much of a, a sort of a, a spectre to these, um, these, these people as the squid itself. That sort of made a bit more sense of that whole thing, but it still didn't really, like, pay off in any really, like, cool way.
0: Can I ask a TomTit as an Australian, and so naturally more... um uh well anyway what do you think of this whole uh point about the cavalry and kane and how that was all written
2: well okay first of all i, I don't know what you were gonna say <laughs> <But> <laughs> if you if you don't want to elaborate then that's fine but um yeah it felt like this episode was really written in just like a sheltered point of view where like you don't need to take the white supremacist threat seriously i'm sure that's not what they intended but that's how it came across to me and then that just coupled with the decision to make the real villain like a anti-imperialist radical it just all felt very um i don't know just like a spit in the face to good television i don't know (laughs) it's
0: it's like you say it's not that we're like saying you needed to make them more good and like say oh it's not that bad or no it's like it's not black and white morality it's not that but it's it's like i don't want to say offensive but to like treat it so like minimalized and like flippant it feels weird because like gig said the greenwood massacre was a real thing that happened and these white supremacist groups are a real thing that happened so to write them like this it it, it feels skeevy to me
2: although although i think everything in this episode was a bit like flippant like before lady tree gets wiped out by the squid you have that little like oh motherfucker beat which is supposed to be funny but it's not you know Also, you have um, the
1: the religious symbolism, there's kind of the Snyder crucifix on the wall that falls down as soon as she's about to get smashed. Like, that was...
0: And the stigmata in her hand.
2: Yeah. I'm just thinking about how the last image of Ozymandias that we're left with chronologically in the show's events is him getting, like, handcuffed and taken away to jail like this is an episode of Scooby-Doo or some fucking shit.
0: (laughs) You know what's um, messed up about that is, like... this show about, like, the ethics of policing and cops and, you know, culture wars and that, it has Laurie getting Vite arrested is treated as, like, the moral victory. Like, that is really weird for this show of all shows, don't you think? Like, this uncritical faith in, in like, the legal system and the, just, like, just to t- treat the cops as, like, the default resolution and do you know where I'm going with this? You can probably express it better than me.
2: To hand-wave... Well, um, I think, yeah, you, you expressed it fairly well, but to, like, to hand-wave Laurie's role in... Um keeping the squid conspiracy like hush hush was very felt lazy to me like I feel like Lindelof he kind of just had those characters in that spot and rather than you know writing something which felt uh relevant to the themes he just kind of pulled this scene out of a hat you know where he gets arrested and it's you know a big cheer moment or I think that's how it's supposed to be played I'm not entirely sure
1: also there was a line um Vite is like oh are you going to arrest the president and she's like maybe (laughs) which was like well um okay hang on a minute because obviously that that question throws up so many other questions, you know, in terms about institutional power, because obviously, the expected answer to, is the FBI just going to arrest the president is, you know, fuck no, of course it isn't. Because, you know, as history has so often shown, that sort of thing simply does not happen, but it feels like the fact that they have Laurie give her sort of sassy answer to that, like, maybe we'll arrest the president, you know, the world's not going to end, it seems like, this is going to sound so stupid, but it seems weirdly like a... It seems like a Trump thing. Like they made it a Trump thing yeah. at the last minute, and that that concerns me. Do, do you know what? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, that's I, I absolutely
0: the vibe I got.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It came to yeah, it occurred. Basically,
1: like it's glib rather than politically, you know, insightful or incisive in any way. And you know that's irritating because the book is a great political satire.
0: Speaking of racial violence, I was really dissatisfied with how Hooded Justice's ending is like him just saying, "Well, the God could have done a bit more." and just like kind of do you know what it, like Huda Justice ended his whole saga of American history and racial violence and he just kind of waves it off like just saying oh we could have done a bit more and like there's the symmetry of him being back at the theater at the end but I feel like the laziest way to do a finale is just to connect it to the premiere and rift off a premiere because this is it's just very basic, like you recall the beginning of something and it feels satisfying because it's like a loop. It's, it's a very easy way to do finales. And it just felt like Huda just it didn't really go anywhere after his amazing sixth episode. I, I didn't like, like, I agree, Dr. Manhattan could have done a bit more, obviously, but the show could have done a bit more about the point that he could have done a bit more. You know what I'm saying?
2: I think the show was way too, like, neutral on Dr. Manhattan in general. I mean, all the stuff about his role in Vietnam is hand-waved away, you know, especially by the simple act of putting him with Angela, like, in a romantic relationship, and, you know, she was literally raised as a child, like, idolising him as a god, and that's all never addressed. It's just a sweet love story, la-la-la-la. And, you know, you have all this stuff about, like, Dr. Manhattan as a symbol of white power, which, you know, they went in a different direction by putting him in the body of Cal, But um, they never do anything with that either. And um, yeah, I I don't know. It's just like the Dr. Manhattan strand is just like a void of substance, basically.
1: Yeah, the Dr. Manhattan stuff, um, it strikes me that as much as I don't, really rate it that much as like a a direction for the story in general to go there is clearly something there is clearly something that could be done there because you have the white supremacists viewing uh manhattan as this übermensch who they can you know become and obviously that that makes a certain sense and then you have with the ending you have what seems to be a little bit of a conspiracy going on between hooded justice and manhattan himself prior to his death to get angela to maybe eat that egg and possibly inherit like manhattan's powers and become whatever on earth she would then become with the experiences she has had and those abilities I mean Lindelof has been in an interview suggesting that she'll, oh white supremacy is going to be in for a bad time if Angela gets those powers and stuff and they're like okay, like, okay f- fair enough, Like, there is a certain like revolutionary impulse in the idea of creating a sort of omnipotent uh, black avenger who wants to you know take her sort of uh, revenge out on white supremacy and all that stuff but the thing is if you, that's, that's an actual story and if that's a story that is the story that's not just like a glib thing to maybe gesture at at the end of the story that's the actual that's the only thread of actual story anywhere in this manhattan shit in the show and they don't they just they had just a weird scene of her eating a raw egg and then she is about to step into a pool and that's all we get like that's so fucking bizarre the egg shit is so weird in general because they they thread the egg stuff throughout the entire show they've got everyone thinking there's going to be some crazy cosmic egg Egg kind of theory stuff where the universe is an egg or whatever and it's just her eating a raw egg <laughs> so she can become Manhattan but we don't see it like it just doesn't make any sense I don't understand why they did any of this stuff it's just so fucking strange
0: I feel like the eggs are much more of a motif than a symbol and that they're frequently just used to be used to be in the show without really mapping onto specific ideas like I think there's always oh, the new life because eggs represent new life, can tie into the generational and legacy themes of the show. And more so, maybe eggs kind of can work as a representation of paradoxes because chicken and the egg, and so eggs kind of represent Manhattan in that way. The comic is overflowing with amazingly deployed uh, literary motifs and symbols and allegories and all these kinds of techniques that all feed into each other and all very focused. Like you can read them in a lot of ways, but they all, their connections are very they really work and they've really been considered and the comic really crackles with intelligence. You can tell the two very, you know, intelligent men created this with so much thought. Even as they were improvising, you know, parts of it, there was so much intelligence going into it. And then the show was written by a lot of people who are very creative and I'm sure they're very smart and everything, but stuff like the egg motif just makes me kind of go, eh, (laughs) like I'm not really feeling the smarts here. Like they
3: just put it in for that image at the end of her drinking the egg like yeah and sort of because it felt so clunky the way it was addressed before like oh we can put his powers in the neck and it's like okay that's where they're going great
2: look what my the symbolism yeah um i think it's very appropriate to the themes and motifs of this show that it's written by the son of the creator of lost you know <laughs> yeah. i mean am, am i wrong in that like i haven't done the research but i it nick hughes is the son of Carlton hughes, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, Nick Hughes wrote some of the really cool leftovers episodes, didn't he, with uh, Lindelof? so Yeah, he was like, on International was, Assassin. Yeah, so and also, you know, the pilot of this of Watchmen was great as well, which he was on too. So I was expecting something really kind of crazy and trippy for this, and it was just—it just, it was just so normal. Like I think the the least the, the least exciting episodes of the show generally have been the ones that felt the most like normal television and the least like experimental kind of fun boundary pushing television, and and this was one of those, you know. And that point about Moore and Gibbon, um, yeah, the the, the, the creative team behind the book just being so overflowingly like creative and everything just so considered and the the show in comparison it just it really is a chad and the virgin scenario like it's just it's just it's uh like it's it's so despairingly mundane like this is like yep okay this sure is the work of a bunch of TV writers somewhere trying to do an imitation of watchmen and that's what it ends up being and it's just it's just frustrating because they got some genuine genuine nuggets of brilliance in the first half of the series
0: I, I want to stress I think everyone involved here is really good at their jobs like I think this is they're all making television at a high level and you know it's it's HBO and the people here the writers they are skilled and they're talented and they're doing good work but a lot of the people here have done better is the the issue and they're trying to live up to a comic that is incredibly. it's a you know it's a masterpiece of the form and that's the issue i'm not saying anyone here is like untalented but i'm saying they set themselves a really high goal and they you know they well you didn't meet it so it is what it is no one was forced to make a Watchmen show you know Lindelof chose to do this after being offered three times and you can read the biblical allegory into that um, for sure but like they didn't have to do this and they did do this so I'm going to judge them for how good a job they did or did not do
3: should have watched more Outer Limits episodes
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, More and Gibbons they described the original Watchmen book as being like a jewel like with all the symbols and motifs like it reflects from any angle and any side and it's just all these patterns and stuff and In that sense, this show is very much like an egg. (laughs) It doesn't reflect anything. (laughs) You crack it open, it spills everywhere. I
0: I really agree. I think the the mark of a great story, or at least uh, what I take as great stories, what really appeals to me is, like I love that jewel idea. I haven't used that before. That's really good. But the refracting idea, that all the the component parts of a story reflect and reflect on each other. Like the micro represents the macro, the macro represents the micro. I think this is what you find in, like, masterpieces, where, like, every storyline reflects each other, and they interact with each other, and they feed into each other, and the comic absolutely does this in spades, and not just in the really... You know, it's funny to say literal, but stuff like the Black Friday sub-story reflecting on multiple characters' journeys, not just that, but down to, like, the symbols used and how the use of the symbols involves. It's all done. Such an interconnected, fantastic level. And, you know, I don't blame the show for not living up to that, but... It's Watchmen, so this is how you're going to get judged. But I will say, I felt like the show's Dave Gibbons, the illustrator... I say illustrator, the comic, and I feel like I'm doing him a disservice... ...because he was the creative team, you know, with Moore. They mapped out this story together. You know, they did the world building together. It wasn't like Moore just sent him the scripts... ...and Gibbons just dumbly, like, drew them, albeit, really well. He was, like, the other half of this. But for the show, I felt like that was Nicole Castle... ...who directed episodes one, two, and eight... And, like, she always said she was trying to imbue her episodes with loads of symbols. um, And not just to reflect the comic, but just, like, visual storytelling in general. And, you know, she had her own little ticks, like, all the split diopter shots she was using. I was quite happy with, like, some of the, um, not the writing side of the show and stuff like that. But, yeah, the show's more equivalents, which I guess were the six or seven or so writers. I know there were two stages of writers' rooms, but, yeah, they... I mean, it's very hard to live up to Alan Moore. The guy's amazing.
2: Um, I guess I want to talk a little bit about uh, like Hooded Justice's speech at the end because I feel like it was kind of meant to be the centerpiece of the episode, but it um, fell short for me, but I don't know. I may be in the minority, but um, it kind of felt I to me it. like, and I'm interested. Right. Yeah. But I <laughs> think in
0: today's to world, like, you feel like you're in the minority. As, as <laughs>
2: <say>. Oh God. <laughs> um, yeah, moving on. <laughs> It kind of felt like to me he was saying, like, you know, you shouldn't be angry about all the injustices. and Because I couldn't stop thinking about, like, hooded justice. He wore his mask, and in wearing that mask, he actually got a lot of, like, material shit done against Cyclops, you know? And he's, he's here saying, like, no, uh, masks are bad. When, like, it was the Minutemen who were after the fucking publicity the whole time who were, like, actively impeding that progress. Um, and they were all out in the open. But... Um, this Hood of Justice anonymous guy, he was actually out there like, you know, I mean, you've seen episode six, like, did it feel a little out of step to you? Yeah, you,
0: you heard me in the six podcast, I was harping on about how I was like in love with Hood of Justice and what he was doing because I was so supporting these material goods and he'd like won me back over to superhero fiction because I was so in, in joint with this power fantasy, like now I saw a superhero that was actually absolutely doing such material good and then at the end he's like, well... Masks? Mm, not a good idea. Those, those wounds need air. And like I think that works with the mask theme the show was doing. I don't agree, like, personally, exactly with what it's saying, but, it, like, at least it was connecting to a theme of the show and at that stage in the episode, that was enough to <laughs> satisfy me, I guess.
1: I think with the mask thing, I think it's maybe a bit uncharitable to take the line as him saying that, like, you fighting crime is bad or fighting Nazi cops and Nazis and KKK and stuff is bad or whatever. Rather, the, the, the nuance that that speech tries to put on it is that it's he, what he specifically says is that you can't heal behind a mask in terms of like yourself like you can't, in terms of whatever kind of fundamental trauma pushed you to adopt that mask you can't actually move on from that trauma until you let that mask drop, which I think and I, I think, I yeah, I think there's substance to that, but I question how relevant it really is to, you know, Hooded Justice's story or the kind of the themes of like him and Angela and just stuff in general like, it's, it's a bit of a weird thing for him to sort of drop in right at that point and that And for that to be, like, the closing statement of that whole storyline, it's a bit that's, weird.
0: That's where I come back to my point that, yeah, it's probably bad for you personally and your relationships. You're also doing a shitload of materially good, material good, and you're fashioning yourself as a hero. So there's a bit of sacrifice involved. So, like, I'm not struck by, oh, my God, this hero who was doing so much good, he wasn't healing quite right. He wasn't mentally healthy. His relationships were bad. Like, that's all really sad, and I feel bad for him, but, like, uh, I wouldn't really make the trade-off that this guy had better relationships and didn't get a bunch of racists destroyed and didn't materially improve so many people's lives. Like, uh, I'll take the superhero, please. <laughs> you know what I mean?
3: Sorry. Considering, like, drama wasn't really played upon, you know, like, um, I didn't really get the sense that he was really remorseful for his, for wearing a mask until like his speech at the end.
2: Um. Yeah. So yeah. Do we all? Do we know who uh, Lindelof was taking inspiration from in his uh, depiction of um, Will Reeves in this episode?
0: No. Go on. Go on.
2: <laughs> okay. Well, you love this. Um. Apparently, that whole strand of this episode was inspired by Dumbledore and Harry Potter. <laughs>
1: oh, yeah, I remember that interview <laughs> quote. Yeah. yeah. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs>
2: This is Lindelof's favorite book. How Dumbledore um, <laughs> wants to like, teach Harry a lesson, and um, he d- he lets Harry learn the lesson himself, and then he explains what the lesson was, and that's why the episode is the way it is. And that wasn't the only time this episode reminded me of J.K. Rowling. Are,
0: are you are you, are you having a joke, or are you being serious right now? Did Lindelof actually cite Harry Potter and J.K. Yeah, Rowling
2: yeah, that's as, yeah. On on the oh, of, I think it was the official podcast. He says he talks oh, about man. how much he loves Harry Potter and how it's his favorite book. Um, yeah, I can verify I this. That is, that is in there. I read that as
1: well.
0: Definitely queuing up that past image of the politics of Harry Potter right now. I tell you. <laughs> oh, man.
2: And um, I was like flabbergasted to see that after I watched the episode, because while I was actually watching the episode, the whole ending with um the idea of who deserves Dr. Manhattan's power and it's Angela and she deserves it because she didn't seek it out. Um, it was just offered to her. And that's just the fucking philosopher's (laughs) stone. This,
0: like, you see this all the time in fiction, you know, going back thousands of years, and I hate it every single time. I detest this idea that you can't have power if you want it. I think that is such crap. You know, like, True can't have power because she wants it. Yeah, it's so, it is so... It's
2: passive. It's like a very passive type view
0: in supporting of the status quo and supporting the people in power who want to keep that power is this idea that heroes don't take power, it's foisted upon them, you know, by those who would give it to them. Like, this is such a regressive, passive, in favour of the status quo, as bad as it might be idea. Like, all this thing, like, I know most politicians are terrible, you know, and I know that there's a lot of terrible, ambitious sociopaths seeking power and stuff, but the idea that If you're seeking power, hmm, that doesn't mean you should have it. It's just such crap. It's just such you can't change anything, which is what the show was, you know, the finale was about in the end. It was not letting things change. And Alan Moore, the anarchist writer of the comic, obviously he doesn't approve of what Ozymandias did. Well, I say obviously. The comic actually gives it a pretty fair scope of how you want your reaction to be. But in terms of his personality, obviously he doesn't approve of that. But he wrote something that changed in the comic. So this all this is tying in together. I think the whole discussion, this idea that you can't change things, or you just this fundamental idea you shouldn't change things, or changing things is bad. Ugh, I hate it. I guess
3: John Osterman wasn't like seeking the power either, and I guess they're trying to they're trying to make the point that he's sort of maintaining the status quo. That's
0: true.
1: A slight note of, before I know you're about to say something but just just slight note on the whole uh, seeking power thing to be fair Angela totally ate that egg voluntarily like she could have just not done it like she she, yeah. she was a bit interested and also the whole um those who seek power shouldn't get it thing that does come from the mouth of Adrian and he's you know he's he's, he's the benignant narcissist as well I think Lind- Lindelof had a slight cope about this in one of the interviews he did where he says like well you know um I'm sure Veidt killing her was more of his own ego because he didn't think of and Manhattan's power first and like i mean that's funny but like i think that that could have had more critique in the episode itself in my opinion
2: yeah i was just gonna say that this whole like um effusive love of harry potter is how you we get the villain of um fucking grindelwald trying to stop the holocaust mirrored here by lady true (laughs) trying to clean the air uh get rid of the world's missiles um all that all that malarkey i
3: thought laurie got the shaft i would have liked to see more about her and dr manhattan considering they were together and I don't yeah. think she was aware that Angela was married to him.
0: Yeah. Well she had she thought Cal was hot, like she said that a few times and at the funeral in episode three, was it Cal that felt like he recognized her or her that felt like she recognized him?
1: I think she just greeted him. He was
2: like, Do I know you? And she was like, yeah, No, that's right, that's right. I think right. that that's all it was. I think they have an off screen conversation at one point. Oh yeah,
1: that's true, yeah.
0: I think Gene Smart has um Laurie Blake is the best casting of the show and I think it was one part of the show that worked so well even when she was getting underserved in the finale she still just worked like gangbusters for me that was incredible incredible casting fantastic
1: Practically every line Laurie has in the finale is basically fan service of some kind, which is ironic considering, you know, you say it would have been fan service to have more John-Laurie interaction, but, like, you know, John's the only reason Laurie is even in that room. Like, that's why she was Mm. brought down by Senator Keane. Like, it just, it would have been eminently, like, interesting and good writing to actually play that relationship to some extent at least to show how it matters a little bit but you know manhattan just gets like plonked out of existence in the fairly muted and forgettable scene and yeah that's that's your lot basically
0: <laughs> did you guys get that if you click the passage about dale Petey having canola oil in the last PDPedia, Peti it takes you to a picture that is a wanted page for lube man
2: oh really yeah and it's a it's in a gibbons drawing i think i saw it on yeah Reddit. yeah
0: it, it's by Dave yeah. gibbons it's, that's fantastic
2: i'm surprised we didn't get Petey like even um out of the lube man costume like i mean <laughs> they spent all the money on that one lube man scene and
0: i mean in episode three he was well out of costume
1: at the end <laughs> oh, <right.
2: laughs> very funny yeah but um just the actor like completely completely dropped out of the world but um yeah you know i'm fine with no uh, epic lube man saving the day you know the one scene was a, a good innings for him.
0: In short, would you guys want a second season of the show?
2: Yes, but by someone else, I think. If this was all he had
3: to say, then that's, I'm fine leaving it at that. But if someone else has something, sure.
2: <laughs> I hear people suggest that, like in 35 years, like the next generation of authors could pick this up and build on like this show. But I, I feel like the material in this show is not, um, not like. What's the word? Long-lasting. Not long-lasting, not provoking enough for like future. Significant. (laughs) Right, yeah. Um, So I don't think that'll happen and I don't think it should happen. Um, Just leave well enough alone. Otherwise you end up with a glib facsimile. (laughs) Yeah,
0: Yeah, I did love most of this show, but I definitely don't think it's going to inspire any new minds the way that the original comic inspired Lindelof in the first place.
1: Also, I don't want Watchmen to be a franchise that keeps coming back over and over for people to keep giving the take on. Like, let, it's a book, it happened, it was great, let it be finished. Okay? I, I appreciate some parts of the show, but like, I don't want it to become an ongoing thing. Like, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm totally public domain supporting. I I think it's fine for people to respond to classic works, but that should be it, its own thing. Like, I just don't want it to be, I don't want it to be some franchise. You know, no matter, as, as much as DC is trying to do that increasingly with the comics, I think that's very bad. So, no more, please.
2: And, um, Lindelof has talked very openly about how he wants Watchmen to be a franchise, like, and he talks, he uh! says things like, um... When he says, he's talking about Joe Keane's monologue, he's defending it. And he says how Vite explains his plan in the original book. And then he calls that a trope of genre, but it's also a trope of Watchmen. And like, ah. I am think that happens one time in a book is not a trope. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> For this non-existent franchise. Um, so that's worrying.
0: The reception to Lost has scarred the off not dotting every I and crossing every T.
1: To be fair, they didn't cross every T. What- how the fuck was Will so sprightly at 105 years old? They just, you know, they set that up and didn't answer it at all. How did he drink that coffee? Like, it's so ostentatiously set up as a mystery, and they just don't, like, they don't do anything with it at all. Like, no, he's just- he's just completely fine.
3: Mm. It's like, um, people, um, online are saying, like, Dr. Manhattan just fucking died. And all people can talk about is Lube Man.
1: (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, I think that last PtPedia document sort sort of being the final word on Lube Man is almost a more satisfying final word on the show than the final shot of the show. I love it, yeah.